I am right-handed. And so whenever, as a child, my father taught me how to shoot a shotgun, he put it in my right hand. And for a year, I was a terrible shot. I could not hit a moving target if my life or anyone's life depended on it. Until my dad said, you know what, perhaps you are left-eye dominant. And so whenever putting the gun to my left shoulder and looking down it, it's, it was straight for the first time instead of at an angle. And so it took a while to get that ingrained habit of shooting right-handed and picking something up my left hand to go and perform that skill. And so still, I am now a decent shot, but not a great one. But in comparison, I had a friend, um, Father Donald Bernard, who just a few years ago had never really shot a shotgun. And he had played Call of Duty, but never used a gun before. No reason to think that he would be good at this at all. But he has the privilege of being right-handed and right-eye dominant. And so the moment that he picked the gun up, he was already a better shot than I was. There was something about him starting fresh that gave him that ability where he didn't have to undo this old habit and then relearn it a new way. And so to this day, he remains a better shot, although I would never tell him that. I would tell you that. But the point of this image is to illustrate how an ingrained habit can put us off on the wrong foot sometimes, make it really hard to get things right. And not just habits of skill, but also habits of thinking. Because between the first reading and the gospel, we have two different sets of groups. One with a certain habit of thinking, and one that's lost a habit of thinking. The first I'll talk about in the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus returns to his hometown. Now both, we take a step back, both in the first reading of the gospel, the messages are very similar. That Ezra says to the Israelites, proclaiming the law of the Lord to them, they weep and rejoice and surrender to the Lord, giving their amen. But then in the gospel, whenever Christ goes to his hometown, we don't hear it in this text right here, but just a few verses after, we're met with, is he not the son of a carpenter? This sort of indifference toward this message that Christ has come to proclaim the captives free, as well as this indifference of boredom, a boredom that Christ has came, uh, come to claim the captives free. And so why is that? The Jewish people, Christ does this in a synagogue. And so there are a lot of Jews who are there, presumably. And they're familiar with the religious tradition of Judaism. Now the problem is, while at the forefront of their mind, they're familiar with the tradition that their ancestors have passed down to them, there's something happening, a rewiring in the back of their brain, an ingrained habit that is happening without them knowing, by the civilization that they're living in. Increasingly, it's becoming Hellenized. That is, Greek culture is moving in, has moved in. So you're having all this Greek philosophy that's coming in, but on top of that, you also have the Roman culture that's coming in, and kind of muddying the waters, to where whenever Christ proclaims that he's come to set the captives free, it's met again with boredom, indifference, we'll do our thing at the synagogue, but don't come to act like anything's going to be different now that you're here. 
So I don't know exactly what it would be like to think like one of those Jews. I don't know what it would be like to hear that at that time. But I do know what it is to hear that message right now as someone who is an American in the 21st century living right here. And what is that rewiring, that ingrained habit, that cultural memory that I share and I think that we all share? And I think we can call it the anti-charigma. That is the bad news. The charigma being the good news. And so what that anti-charigma, that background noise is that's being conditioned in my mind and in yours sounds something like this. Creation, all of creation, came into existence by a random confluence of events. That somehow these atoms and molecules that were swirling about from the very beginning of creation rolled the dice. And once they rolled the dice, they got lucky and they landed double sixes. And so in this roll of the dice and landing double sixes, then the earth is created. And we, man, are the greatest beneficiaries, or perhaps those who are most cursed by this rolling of the double sixes, because we now have the power of reason and free will, or at least the illusion of it, to try to make sense of this world, although it's absolutely senseless. Again, that it's about as random as rolling the dice. And so we get this idea, obviously, from from Darwin's theory of evolution, not that all theories of evolution are bad, but, but Darwin's random theory of evolution. And because of this randomness, now man doesn't really have a purpose. He's just here. He thinks that he has a purpose or he tries to create a purpose, but there's nothing really that happened of significance behind his creation. And so what does man end up doing? He recognizes that he prefers to live in order rather than chaos. And so society is a good thing. And now we come into the thought of someone like Thomas Hobbes, who says that man forms society so that he does not kill him another man. Because we all have our individual desires. The only way that we keep from killing one another is by coming together and sacrificing some of those desires. Now, man kind of figures, well, I do like the goods of this world, so what is it that leads to my real happiness? I find that that reason doesn't really lead anywhere, but that my carnal, my fleshly drives kind of lead me to some kind of joy. And now we get to where Sigmund Freud kind of comes into the conversation, right? And sexualizes everything about us, that everything collapses down into our sexual drive. And then we have someone like Nietzsche who comes into the uh, conversation and says that because there is no reason at all in the world, that man has to have this will to power, that he is to overcome whatever circumstances that he is in, and he has to define himself because there is no real definition that exists for him, no one to define him. And so now we have all this, but we have to live in society and so what is one of the best ways to control society? It's to say that there is a transcendent value. Whether that transcendent value exists or not, 
who cares? If it gets people to behave better, then great. And what better uh, transcendent value than to think that God became man and that he established a church? Now, whether any of this is true, who cares? What matters is that it makes people behave well. And if it makes people behave well, we don't kill each other, we can satisfy our desires in a reasonable manner, then it has succeeded. This is something very much like the anti-charisma, the bad news. Because whenever Christ comes to us and says, I have come to set the captives free. I desire you to become a saint. We scoff at it. Why? Because you say, well, no, because I am reduced to my sexual desires. To say that I'm going to live charitably and that I can actually sacrifice for someone else is a pipe dream. It's a fairy tale. To say that I can become humble and live under the law of the Lord, say, again, that's a pipe dream. It's a nice religious sentiment, but I am meant, there's no real definition for me. I have to overcome all this by my will to power. To say that I can live charitably or that the church itself is a good society is to say, please, we're just trying to f- get this together, this man-made organization, so that we have some kind of order in this world of absolute chaos. This is the bad news. But it's often the ingrained habit of thinking that we receive the gospel with. It's kind of like this, like this magnifying glass or this prism by which we see the gospel. And so how do we get out of it is the question. How do we get out of it? And what about those people in the first reading who received the law of the Lord with tears and with joy and with an amen? Were those people preserved from this way of thinking? Were they preserved from the Romans? Were they preserved from the Greeks? Were they preserved from Freud, from Darwin, from Nietzsche, from Hobbes? They were not. In fact, quite the opposite. They were exposed totally to those people in a sense. The people in the first reading, these Israelites, are just coming out of the exile. And so the situation with them is not that they've been kind of put in this Israelite bubble, or like we sometimes call it this Catholic bubble, and left preserved and unstained. The situation is that they've totally forgot the law of the Lord. They've forgotten it altogether. And so, like my friend who, you know, taking up a shotgun for the first time, they receive the law of the Lord with fresh eyes, with newness, so that whenever Ezra proclaims the law of the Lord to them, it is received as truly good news, not good news that's kind of mixed in with this bad news, but they don't realize quite yet that it's bad. And so the way I think that we need to rewire and recognize this, to look at this fresh eyes, is that right now, the world in which we live, and that's said subliminally and not out loud, is that Darwin, you know, this theory of random evolution, that Darwin is our pope. Darwin is our pope. And that the bishops who bring this out remain people like Thomas Hobbes with the social contract theory, uh, Sigmund Freud with the sexual, the reducing of desire to man to sexual desires, and now um, Frederick Nietzsche who reduces uh, man's drive to his will to power. 
but that to allow the scientists to remain scientists and the psychologists to remain psychologists, to allow Christ's vicar to remain Christ's vicar. And so what is this good news? What is the good news then that Christ intends to proclaim that we need to look at again with fresh eyes? And I'll admit, whenever I was writing this homily, it was a lot easier for me to write the bad news than it was the good news. Because as living within this society where, you know, um, Darwin remains Pope, so to speak, and um, the gospel remains sort of a pipe dream and a fairy tale, it can be hard to navigate it. But I'll try my best. That God who has existed from all eternity is all good, all powerful, and all knowing. That he exists one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an eternal communion of divine love. And without having his hand forced and in total freedom, he gives himself entirely in creation without a forced hand that out of abundant love and with intelligence and decision, intentionality and purpose, he creates the world. And as the pinnacle of creation, he creates us, male and female in his own image and likeness. So much so that he loves us, that he gives us his image and likeness, and he gives us freedom, but also his commands so that we can share in his life and be eternally happy with him. And so then there's this other class of beings who God has created before the world, and these are the angels. And amongst the angels, a third of them fall out of their pride, and their prince looks upon man and is envious, because this mere flesh and bones is created in God's image and likeness, and not him. And so out of the envy of the devil, he deceives man and makes man not want to trust his creator, to think that his creator does not desire him to share in divine happiness. And so through man's sin and the envy of the devil, real evil enters into the world. And it's not God's fault, it's ours. But God doesn't blink. God recognizes the the enemy's intentions, and he recognizes our weakness. And he never decides to extinguish man. But rather, he looks at him without blinking, with the same love with which he created him, and immediately promises him the gospel. And makes covenants with men such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then gives laws so as to gently bring him back into that promise of divine life gives prophets so that he can speak to man's heart and prepare it for the coming of himself in man's very flesh when he begins to suffer even for our sake, to show us that great dignity that he showed us at the beginning of creation, that we are made in his image and likeness, so much so that he put his own skin in the game and decided to suffer and die for us and to even descend into hell, to rise again three days later, and then to ascend into heaven to show where we belong, eternally with the Father. 
that we do not belong alone. And after that, he, after ascending, right before ascending into heaven, he gives man the ability to say mass, to do this in memory of him, so that his flesh and blood, by which he will give life to the world, will continue to be given throughout the ages until he comes again. He establishes his church so that he can be known to all the corners of the world. And he promises the Spirit will come. And he deposits that Spirit in our hearts so that the divine life with which he promised at the very beginning of creation can begin within us right now, whenever we receive the Spirit, so that we can live beyond the desires of the flesh. This is not a pipe dream. This is not a fairy tale. It's written into the very fabric of creation. And it's the very reason why we have good reason to believe that God is calling us to be saints and he's giving us the grace to do it.